Well, good morning. Uh, pray for me that my voice will hold out. Uh, today we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 34. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 34. So let us uh, go to the Lord and ask for His guidance and His blessing. Our gracious Father, we thank You for having given to us Your Word. Thank You that You chose to use Mark to direct us in a specific direction and the the complement of Christ as His work for our salvation. But Mark shows us that he's talking more about the humanity of Christ and His role as Savior. And Father, we pray that You will bless that study of His Word, this study. We pray that we will use it to grow more like Him and that You will open our hearts to the needs of others around us as we minister to them as well. Forgive us of our sins. We ask this in Your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would somebody uh, read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 34? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 34. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. By way of review, I'd like to point out to you that uh, last week, uh, Preston did an excellent job of uh, introducing, shall we say, 
the beginning of the gospel. Uh, he did this. Uh, there were three points that he pointed out, out to us. One is that the, this all began with the ministry of John the Baptist saying, prepare the way. And so here we saw uh, the, the, the preaching of John uh, that we are to come to him in repentance and faith and that he was the baptizing people in the baptism of repentance. Then we also saw that uh, Christ himself was baptized and we noticed that there was a reason for Christ being baptized that so that he would be identifying with us and our sin. And then thirdly, a thing that uh, Preston pointed out to us was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness as he defeated the work of Satan. Uh, he did not, this was to be completed but uh, uh, at, at the cross, but there was no way that now that, this, that Satan had any control over Christ, Jesus at this time. So that brings us to uh, the uh, the idea of the uh, the outline for the book of Mark. The outline started with that beginning of the work of Christ. Then we come up with the very next point is going to be the subject for the next ten chapters is going to be the work that Christ did as he progressed through bringing the gospel to the land and as he uh, bore witness to the grace of God in salvation. And he preached the gospel of the kingdom. That goes from uh, chapter 1, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 52. At at that point, uh, the third point of the the outline starts off saying this we bring into the consummation of the work of Christ, in chapters uh, uh, 11 all the way through chapter 16, verse 8. And then there is that controversial sub-passage at the end of Mark. So beginning now with uh, Christ's actual work, uh, his, his uh, person and work that he began, it was, uh, had to do with the law and the gospel. Now why is that so important? Why was the law and the gospel so important in the introduction of Christ's work here on earth? Can somebody... It was the law... Yeah, go ahead, brother. Uh, he was here to fulfill the law. He was here to fulfill the law. He was here to fulfill the... Uh, to do what the prophets had ordained that he would say and do. But the the law and the prophets proclaimed his coming, that he would indeed restore God's people to the fellowship with God. And so after Jesus' ministry, after his his baptism, he came therefore preaching the gospel of God. Uh, What is the gospel? I've been amused to find out how many people uh, really don't understand what the gospel is. Now, we all have a common uh, answer uh, when somebody asks us what's the gospel. And what is that common answer? Good news. Well, good news about what? Well, uh, let's say somebody came to me and said, Woody, you just inherited $15 million. 
Now that's good news. That would be really, real good news. Is that the good news that he's talking about here? What, what, what is this good news that, that Christ came into the world preaching the gospel of God uh, and uh, declaring that the kingdom is at hand? What is, how do we see that connection? Uh, for example, is the gospel only that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried according to the scriptures, and was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures? Is that the full extent of the gospel? What, what have I left out? Right, okay, that's one thing. What, why is he coming? Okay, that, that's, that's a good answer. So why is he coming? You, uh, you said to raise us, okay, why is he raising us? Why is, why, why is the resurrection so important? In, keep it in the context here, uh, verse 14 and 15. Why is it important that he's coming again to raise us from the dead? Within, okay. And what, what does that have to do? You're right. What does that have to do with verse 14? Say that a little bit louder so everybody can hear you. He's coming to rule as king over his kingdom. Okay, so that brings another question. Uh, well, first of all, before I, I get, uh, before I, uh, I ask that question, uh, I want to say that the the gospel then is not only what we talk about the good news. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Remember that's what he, that's what I kept trying to say. You know, keep it in the context here. It's the gospel of the kingdom. So now that that brings up the question: What is the kingdom of, of God? The kingdom of heaven. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Mark calls it the kingdom of God. What is it, and why did Matthew and Mark choose different words? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? I'm sorry, Anki. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Do we do we have a kingdom without a king? Who who's the king? Jesus is the king. Why is it important that we call him Jesus and not Christ? Well, he is Christ. Why does Mark... Okay, I looked it up. There's over 80 times that the word Jesus, the name Jesus, is, is mentioned in the book of Mark. How many times is the name Christ mentioned in the book of Mark? Eight. Eight times. Mark is in, uh, here to trying to show us that Jesus is not only a man, but he's God, the God-man. So, so I'm asking the question, if you have a king, he's a king of what? He's a king of a kingdom. He's got his own rule. What is his rule? Is it, is it only people? Is it only a land? What is it? Well, in the establishing of the Great Commission, Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So in other words, 
everything is belongs to the king. Now wait a minute, does that mean that we're not going to, that that's not going to happen until seven years before the millennium? Is that what it means? No. He means that he's, uh, the way that Adam answered the question, it means that Christ is king, became king, was king, uh, I shouldn't have said became, Christ was king when he came. And so he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And how did he bring that about? How did he mention that? In the, in the context of, a, of the lesson. In verses 14 and 15. It's the gospel of God. And we're, okay, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more specific on what the gospel is here. It's, repent and believe. There is no belief apart from repentance, as Pastor Joyner pointed out to us a while ago. But it's also faith. The gospel is calling us to faith, and it's about a, an effectual call. Uh, this is, we see this mentioned later in this chapter when four of the fishermen are called to him. But So, whenever we're talking about the, the kingdom here, it's, we're talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the promised Savior and Redeemer of sinners, who came to be the mediator between God and man. And all of this implies that he did a work of atonement, that he imputed his righteousness to those whom he died on the cross for, and that he justified them, that he is at work with through the Holy Spirit, uh, sanctifying his people, and that as... Uh, Carlos mentioned he's going to raise them at the last day. Now, so that that is a nutshell definition of the gospel. Whenever we hear a lot of the uh, evangelical preaching of the gospel today, quite often they leave out that this was a fulfillment of what was prophesied through the law and the gospels. The law in the sense that the law specified what would be done, how that God would redeem his people, and he did this through the, mostly through the ceremonial law. In other words, he fulfilled all the things that are prophesied about him in the ceremonies, and to such an extent now that those ceremonies are passe because he has fulfilled them. So the time is fulfilled. Now, this is good news. Think about it now for a second. Here you are. You've, uh, you're, you're a descendant of some of the most godly men and women throughout the history of the land, throughout the history of the world, shall we say. And you're moaning and groaning because of the, the impediment that you have, not only from what the Romans are doing in your land, but because of your own sin, primarily because of your own sin. And you're grown, you want to be made right with God. And, that, and you're just not quite satisfied with what's happening when that lamb is sacrificed every year. You, you're thankful for that. You're thankful for the news that, that God has taken your sin and laid it upon that lamb. But yet there's still something that's, that's burning in your soul, that yearning for being right with God. 
And we see now that now it has been fulfilled. The promise that Christ would come to bear your sins away. That has been fulfilled. He's here. Can you imagine? You're there at that time. What would you feel like? It's here. He's here. We don't have to wait another 2,000 years. We don't have to wait another 4,000 years or however long it's going to take. We waited 430 years already for some word from God. But we don't, okay, so that's, that's the point that I'm trying to point out. Yeah. Was, was Christ king and he was revealed at this time? Or was the kingdom established because it, he was not king until this point? He was king from eternity past, first of all. So uh, that, that's the answer to one of your questions. The kingdom uh, has always been in existence. It's a mystical kingdom to us here in this land. And in fact, a lot of uh, uh, eschatological teaching today is built upon a physical kingdom. Uh, the Bible is teaching that the kingdom is the kingdom of God. Uh, he says here, the kingdom uh, has come amongst you. Uh, is that, I can't remember now. Uh, and, and Luke says, the kingdom is in with, within you or in your midst. Uh, I'd like to talk about that sometime later, but we don't have time for that. So to answer your question, the kingdom has always existed. The king has always existed. It's just that he's, shall we say, he's, he's uh, invading mankind. He's invading a sinful world to, for, and he's set about for the purpose of setting things straight between man and God to such an extent that he's called all men everywhere to repent and come to... to maybe I missed, did I not answer your question? Sort of. I was just wondering, you know, I mean, you did answer my question that he has been, was king the whole time, but I do think it's more of a, a revelation of yeah, well, he's here, he's... Okay, and this is the revelation. Yeah. Mark Mark begins the revelation, uh, and by the way, that, that I'm presupposing uh, that Mark is the oldest uh, of the four Gospels. So Mark is recording the the very first revelation that Christ the King has come. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, God the Father has always been observed as the King. Uh, there was not that quite that clear teaching about the Trinitarian aspect of God, yet it was there. It was there, and the people just simply did not comprehend it as much. But and the Old Testament, so the king has always been there. Now we're suddenly getting, we're going to come up here to what? what's this new teaching? What's this new teaching that, that Mark mentions here? But let's, let's finish this up here first. Now, I would like to point out one more thing here before we go on to that. That uh, at this point, uh, John was still alive. And that's important as we talk about the calling of the, uh, the apostles. But John was still alive, as we see in Matthew 11. But I want to point out that the combination of the gospel and the phrase, the kingdom of God, go together. That they are one common context. 
uh, and that is, uh, look with me to, um, let's see, I, I lost my note here. Here we go. Uh, Luke, no, that's not Luke, it's uh, Matthew chapter 4, 23. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing and every disease and every affliction among the people. And I, I didn't read that correctly. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Here we see that the gospel includes the kingdom. That if we separate the concept, as some eschatological teaching today does, separating the concept of the kingdom from the gospel, we are cheapening, we are uh, shortchanging, shall we say, the nature of the doctrine of the gospel by separating the kingdom from the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ himself. And he is the king who came to establish the kingdom in the hearts of his people. Uh, that, that same concept is borne out also in uh, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 9, 35, Matthew chapter 24, 14. And in the ESV for Luke 4, 43, it talks about the good news of the kingdom, or the, uh, so which is the same thing as being the gospel of the kingdom. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we do not, we cannot look upon the kingdom as being separate from the gospel. The gospel is identified with the kingdom. Um, uh, so then he says the kingdom is at hand. Now why, why is that significant? What does that mean? Well, that's, that just bears out what I was trying to say. That the kingdom now is here. That's the point. It's not yet something to be off in the future. Now, there, I'm not. Maybe you might misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there is not a future manifestation of the kingdom. There is. There is most assuredly a future manifestation of the kingdom. The point here is that there is an already and not yet aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom is here with Christ. Now, is Christ in your heart? Christ in you, the hope of glory? Is Christ in your heart? Well, then you have the, the fulfillment here of the fact that the kingdom is here now. Uh, but it's not the fulfilled, finalized, or consummated kingdom. The time has been fulfilled that Christ has come to bear the sins of the people away. It's still yet to be finalized at the second coming of Christ. And let's have uh, anybody else. Did, maybe, I know I didn't answer your question adequately, but uh, maybe, yes. Well, Woody, I wonder, does it, does it fit, is it accurate in relation to Jeremy's question and the teaching you provided here to compare the, the relationship of Christ as king and the kingdom temporally to the same kinds of things we talk about 
in the defeat of death on the cross. That there's a judicial aspect that death is truly and really defeated at the cross 2,000 years ago, but is not fully and finally manifested in every sense in time until the end when Christ comes again and defeats the last enemy fully yeah. and finally in that sense. Right. That's very good. Right. That's... Huh? Uh, that's clearer than what I said. Thank you. Okay, yeah, any other questions regarding this? Uh, I do. So we know in Jeremiah 31 and throughout the New Testament that God's people, uh, Gentiles, are brought, brought into this promise of, of being God's children. And we, we're, we're God's children through the Spirit. So could be a, could an aspect of the kingdom be could the kingdom be brought around further by believers spreading and, and multiplying throughout the ages? Could that be an aspect? Of so, so you're talking about the growth of the kingdom. Yes, the uh, yes in fact, um, the Old Testament clearly uh, taught that the world was to be evangelized to be brought into the kingdom. Uh, The the Old Testament did not use the word evangelize, but the concept is clearly taught in the Old Testament. The Jews uh, were like the uh, older brother and the prodigal son, the story about the prodigal son. They, They were jealous about their own religion. They didn't want to share it with other people. But uh, that's but yes, uh, yes, that is an aspect of the expansion of the kingdom. That's he came to take that in in hand and to do that. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's go on now to verses uh, sixteen through twenty, and where he calls four fishermen. Uh, they're, I'm not going. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want to point out that. Uh, have, okay, let me ask a question. How many of you have been down on the coast, either California coast, the Gulf Coast, or the Atlantic coast, and watched somebody casting a net? Have you ever seen? I see one hand. <laughs> uh, how big is that net? That net was about four feet diameter, and it had lead, uh, lead weights all around. It was a circular net. It was about four feet in diameter, and it took a real man to cast that. It didn't take no uh, boys could not cast a cast net. I guarantee, I guarantee you that. Uh, as you would throw it out, it would spread out. Then the net would fall down and go all the way to the bottom. And those poor fish that were down there, they didn't have a chance to get away. Now that's the kind of the net that. Mark is talking about here in verses 16 through 20. There are two other kinds of nets that the Bible refers to. One is what we today call a seine. That's where you get a bunch of guys on one pole and another bunch of guys on the other pole with a net between them. They go out as far as they can walk out. Then they start, they spread out, and they just start walking back to the beach, and they bring all the, as many fish as they can catch. And then the, a, the other one's called a drag net. Drag net. Um, what you see the shrimpers using today, or other net fishers, they have boards that spread the net out. 
Well, so uh, and then they pull the uh, pulls the net and gets the fish in it. The uh, the difference of that is that the cast net, uh, the fish cannot get away from it. A fish can swim out of the seine. A fish can swim out of a drag net, but he can't swim out of the cast net. And the, that's important here because this is a picture of God graciously calling people to himself. And that we, when we preach the gospel, we do it indiscriminately. And that cast net uh, uh, goes indiscriminately all over the place. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring that little note out. But I don't want to spend too much time on that. But the point is that these men, whenever Christ called them, and by the way, this is the second calling. Uh, we find that, you may remember that when John was preaching in, uh, in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, he says, here comes the, the, Lamb, the, the Lamb of God. And there were a couple of guys sitting there. One of them was Philip. And Philip goes up and says, hey, we goes up to his brother and says, hey, we heard somebody, he, he's, he's the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, what did Philip say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But yet, this is, this, uh, these are these guys here again. So this is actually the second calling because as we see in verse 16, John had already been arrested. So this is the second time that, uh, that uh, Christ was with these men. And this was an effectual call. He called them. Immediately, they left their nets. Immediately, they followed uh, uh, our Lord. Uh, so um, we see that they forsook, they forsook their former life. They, in one case, in the case of James and John, they actually forsook their family, the father Zebedee. But they also forsook their close friends. They had there were, there were some hired servants with them, with them in the boat. So they not only forsook uh, their livelihood, they forsook family, they forsook friends. Now, the important there is that you know, one of the things we should not read into that, that they could care less about their father and their friends, or that they, they were saying that fishing is not a good uh, way to earn a living. This shows the, the, the positive character of what the call is. And you can, I can imagine that uh, these fishermen would go back and help their family, would feed their families when they were uh, not immediately with Christ. Uh, but every time that, uh, every time that it was within the realm of God's call, they were always there. They were always faithful in their calling. So does anybody have a question about the nature of the call? That it's an effectual call. It's not a common grace call. So let's proceed on then toward uh, the next case where uh, Christ goes to Jesus. I keep wanting to say Christ, but Mark emphasizes that this is Jesus using the name Jesus. Jesus goes to Capernaum. Uh, and the very first thing on, that he does is while he's uh, on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue. He doesn't dilly-dally around. He doesn't say, well, 
today I don't feel like I want to go to church. He goes off and and he he does what is he follows Christ. He goes to the synagogue to teach. Uh, immediately, the presence of uh, in the synagogue, there was a man who had an unclean spirit. I think now's the time to stop and backtrack here a little bit and ask what in the world did Paul mean by immediately there was a man with an unclean spirit in that synagogue? Does that mean that just like whenever Christ, after the, uh, after the uh, resurrection, that Christ... Uh, suddenly appeared in the upper room. That, that was, a, that was a, uh, a, a mystery. How did Christ actually appear when, when the door was locked? Is that the way the guy here in the synagogue appeared? No. No. We, we should understand that this guy was a, was a regular member of that synagogue. In fact, they probably had relegated him to the back row because he probably stank. He he was obnoxious. Whatever, you could say a lot about him that was not very good, not very complimentary. And so when Christ began to teach in the synagogue, they were amazed at what he was saying in his teaching. And they were amazed because he taught with authority. So now, why were they so amazed about his teaching with authority? Look at the text. Within the text, it tells you why he was amazed, why they were amazed at his teaching with authority. He wasn't preaching as a scribe. He wasn't preaching as a scribe. Okay. Why? What, what was there? What was the? You're right. The scribe, what, what was the difference of the it? Scribes are repeating text, and he's speaking as if he wrote it. Right, and they were quoting one another. They were, well, you, Rabbi so-and-so 400 years ago said this. And Rabbi so-and-so uh, over here, uh, he taught this particular angle. Now, and, and, now I'm going to argue with Rabbi so-and-so because of this, because Rabbi so this other guy over here, he said what was really right. And they would get into a little ar- verbal argument with themselves sometimes. That's not the way Christ taught. He taught, okay, now, so he taught with authority. What does that mean that he taught with authority? He wasn't referencing the other scribes. Okay, you're right. It means, it means a little bit more, more than that. What else does it mean that he taught? Who is, who, who's this teaching? It's the Word. Huh? The Word. It's the Word. He, he is the author. He is the one who... Who authored those the things that these rabbis were arguing about? He's the one that authored the 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 uh, the, the, uh, the teachings within the gospel. He's the one that offered the teachings of Paul. He's of course that's all future. I understand at this point. He's he is the creator. He is the author. Okay, so that that's that that's the next thing I want to say. Now so. They were all amazed at this now. And uh, so this guy starts screaming and everything. Uh, Get away from my dog. Don't leave me alone. Leave me alone. Don't, don't send us out here and don't damn us. 
they, they said then, well, this, what is this new teaching? What teaching are they talking about? Verses 14 and 15. What teaching are they talking about? What, right, what Christ was teaching in verses 14. Well, I may be wrong about my understanding about the, the kingdom. Don't misunderstand. Uh, but uh, I have my own eschatological understanding. I may be wrong. Christ is not wrong. The scripture is not wrong. That's the point. He was teaching about what the, the, the content of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, what the gospel offered, what the gospel commanded, and what the gospel accomplished. He's teaching all of these things and how it's the filling of the kingdom. The kingdom is here now. And yet it's true. The kingdom is yet to come. Both are true. I don't mean to imply otherwise. Okay, so uh, so that's what that's what they uh, they understood him to be saying. Did they understand this new teaching? Some some say yes. Some say no. Okay, well, some did. Some didn't. Well, let me let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that. Well, some of these guys. Uh, the, the impression that I get from Scripture, this is just a, an interpretation of Woody Berthelot here about this passage of Scripture. Virtually every time that I see some where Christ cast a demon out of a person, the implication is that that person was set free. Set free from what? He's set free from the dominion of Satan. And how has Satan has his dominion in your heart before you came to Christ? He ruled your life before you came to Christ. But now that his, when, when Christ came into your life, he set you free from the dominion of sin in your life. And so I see here a picture of salvation being worked out in the life of this demoniac. And I, I would prefer to believe that there were some members of that congregation who understood, wait a minute, this guy is my third cousin. I know what this guy is like. But now suddenly there's a difference here. I see something going on. This guy is teaching with authority. He's, so now, what does this authority teaching mean? First of all, who has the authority to cast out a demon? Do you have the authority if, if, if a demon... The demoniac were to present himself today here in our congregation. Do you have the authority to cast that demon out? Only through Christ. Only Christ can do that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're jumping the gun. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Only God can cast out a demon. Only God. Who cast that demon out? Jesus. Wait a minute. This is something new. This is a new... I don't understand what's going on here. Something great has happened. This is something that only God can do. So, so how did the Pharisees and scribes uh, re react to this? Huh? How, what kind of answer did, did they have to it? They, they saw this. The scribes who really knew the Old Testament. They saw this. That they knew that only God could cast out a demon. How did they handle it? They questioned him. 
You have any questions? In, in what way? I'm thinking of, um, let's see, it's um, chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 3, verses 22. Well, we're going to only read down through uh, 24. Verses 22 and 23. Just verses 2 and 22. Mark 3, 22 and 23. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them, and he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? So, the 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 whole purpose here then, the reason why they would not reject it, they could not accept it. If they accepted it, was that they would have to recognize that Christ is who God bore witness to in his baptism. Remember uh, as Preston taught us about the baptism of Christ? This voice, you are my son. In you I am well pleased. So they would have to admit that that's true. But they couldn't come to that point. So are there any questions dealing now with this uh, healing of this demoniac? Are there any comments anybody wants to make? It's, it's interesting that the, the demon himself, he says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. So they recognize him. But then the question they ask is, have you come to destroy us? They don't understand why he's here. Right. Like they know who he is, but they don't know what, what's going on. Exactly. Which is, is interesting. Yeah, because what's going on is salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't, they don't get it. Right. Which well, would be some of the reactions of, of some of the other people who don't get it. But, but that's the answer to your first question. They do know. He is coming to destroy them. Yeah. They know that. Yeah. Absolutely. They know when the kingdom comes, they're done. They will be destroyed. Yeah. And so they're saying, is that now? And that's why he tells them the same thing when he says, it's not my time. Yeah. He's telling them to be quiet because that time is not now. And yet yeah. they obey. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm running out of time, and I've got a lot to cover here, so I just want to say, point out that when Simon's mother-in-law, hang up the Roman Catholicism over here for a minute, when Peter's mother-in-law was sick, Christ not only came to her and healed her, but he healed her with tenderness and kindness, gentleness. He's not only master and commander of the demonic realm, but even over the simple, mundane things like a, a fever, he heals that too. And he does it with kindness and compassion. And then let me go on down to uh, uh, verse 32 where he talks about, uh, it was at the evening after the Sabbath, or, the, or right after the Sabbath. Here we see a slavish understanding on their part our misinterpretation of what the Sabbath really is. Because Christ, as we see later on in his teaching, healed people on the Sabbath. They would not come to be healed 
until after, because they knew they would be cast out of the synagogue if they came during the Sabbath, during the Sabbath to be healed. But also one more thing before I close. I would like to point out that he would not permit the demons to speak. Why? Why would he not permit the demons to speak? There you go. He does not need the testimony of the demons. And we see that later in Scripture, right here where we just, what I just read a while ago about they would come. Now, suppose he did that. Suppose he allowed the demons to bear witness and he didn't say, shut up, get out of here. He didn't say that. Just suppose he let it. They could say, well, now, look, we're right. It's by Beelzebub that he's healing these people. See? So, as John said, he, he would not, he, they don't have the place to teach about God's kingdom.